I am so grateful to be able to walk with you through the journey of shedding shame and learning to live by grace alone. My name's Tara Matson. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and a licensed professional counselor. I'm the founder uh, with my husband, Jeff Matson, of Living Wholehearted and Courageous Girls and the clinical director of our uh, clinical practice and executive coaching. So we um, are in the journey of writing books and providing resources for leaders, whether you're in the home, work, or in the community, in the church. We're passionate about helping uh, leaders align all of who they are uh, in the design of who God says he is and who he says we are. Hence, uh, this entire conference. Yes, I'm the visionary for this conference, but I have to tell you that God has created something far greater than I had even imagined with the wealth of women and resources and expertise that you're getting in this gathering. I'm so grateful that you've had courage to say yes to a deeper dive. And today I just want to go into a little more practical as I've been the keynote in the main sessions. I know they've been a little bit more broad. And so this session is going to take you a little bit deeper and into more of how do I actually shed shame and actually live by grace. And I'm going to walk you through four Um, kind of key ingredients in that. The first is you've got to know your story, understanding your wiring, being able to uh, better understand your own neurobiology and the things that impact just our humanity, whether that's our hormones, our brains. We're going to talk about that. And then we're going to also talk about uh, building your encouragement team and the things that that team uh, does in helping you shed your shame and to be able to live by grace alone. In the keynote session, session number one, I talk a lot about those layers of shame and that it is one blanket at a time. And so this is that journey. So I'm so grateful. Uh, You might want to get a pencil, pen if you're running. Uh, Just pay attention to what uh, stands out to you the most because that's what God wants you to, to lean into. And you can always come back and listen again and you might get something different from this breakout. One of my favorite characters of all time is Lucy in the Aslan uh, Narnia series. Uh, If you're not familiar with that series, it's a well-known, loved um, children's narrative by C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest hearts and minds of the church. And Narnia is this incredible uh, place where Aslan rules. He is this beautiful lion that represents such a safe but also um, very powerful God that we serve. And Lucy is just this young, um, just a girl of great faith. And she just believes in Aslan when no one else does. And she sees his power and his goodness when no one else does. And there's this journey throughout uh, with all of these stories. Well, there's this moment where Lucy, after having great faith and such excitement about what God is doing or Aslan, she starts to question her own worth and value. And there's this particular scene. If I was sitting in the breakout with you live, I would play it for you. So feel free to go Google it. It's Lucy's dream and Aslan's words to her. Um, and you'll be able to find it on YouTube. But she she begins to imagine what it would be like to be her sister, Susan. And 
there's that thing that happens in all of us women. I, I there's a lot of reasons why this happens. I think it's the fall of Eve. It's it's the competition and the and the enemies uh, lie that we are enough. But she begins to compare herself to her sister Susan. And if you've had sisters, you know this truth that happens. And and we don't even have to. Um, we don't even have to have uh, blood sisters to understand this because just in walking with other girlfriends along the way, there's that jealousy and comparison that happens nonstop. And we start to think, is this uh, who I'm supposed to be? And man, I wish I could be like her. So Lucy's imagining herself as Susan and she has a dream where she goes through life and Lucy doesn't exist. Well, what happens is Aslan shows up and he speaks right to her and he says these powerful words to her as she's coming out of this nightmarish type dream when she realizes she doesn't exist. And Aslan says that um, that kind of in the, in the apologies of her just feeling the shame of, of questioning her own existence, Aslan says, you wish yourself away and with it so much more. In the dream, she realizes that the impact of her not existing really does have a systemic impact on all of Narnia. And in fact, I think I think the most beautiful line that Aslan says to her in this moment is he says, you doubt your value. Don't run away from who you are. Don't run away from who you are. Shame tells us that there is something wrong with us. There is something wrong with the way that God designed you. There's something wrong, whether it's, I mean, seriously, we doubt the color of our hair, the the texture, our eyes, the shape of our hips, our personalities, our talents, our skill sets, our entire family systems. We doubt it all. And I, I, I know that feeling for years of questioning, God, why did you make me this way? I feel different. Those of you that don't question that maybe haven't hit that point in your story yet, but I would tell you that this is a pretty common place for women in general. That feeling that I am not good enough, and you can just fill in the blank of whatever that not good enough is. I'm not smart enough. I'm not skinny enough. I'm not funny enough. I'm not articulate enough. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And it's because we compare ourselves continually to what God gave someone else around us. And so part of this journey, it's, it's one of the passions of why I created Courageous Girls is because I wanted young girls and their moms to begin to understand the slow drip of their unique design and their unique stories and how that contributes to the greater impact, systemic impact of God's kingdom. That without each of our places in the community, we lose out. We lose out on what God had already embedded and implanted and had in mind when he created us in our mama's womb. Step one is learning to know your story. And majority of us uh, really have a short, small kind of concise narrative of our stories. It goes something like this. I had a good childhood, uh, got married, had some kids, uh, period. (laughs) I don't really know what else I'm supposed to do after I raise my kids. I mean, that is a common place I hear women speaking about. Uh, The other narrative is 
Um, you know, I had a horrific childhood. I don't want to remember it. I don't want to relive it. I put it in a closet and I'm not going to go back there and I'm going to make sure that every ounce of my life is different than what I got growing up. So those two extremes create uh, all kinds of consequences that um, we aren't going to talk about here, but maybe I unpack in other places, whether it's in the books that we're writing or in our podcast, so you can explore a little bit more there. But to know your story means to actually understand your timeline. And session one, I talk a lot about how before I even walk down the road with any of my clients, whether it's an executive coaching client or uh, or working through a trauma, marriage and family, I want to know your timeline. I want to know zero to now. What are the moment, the markers in your story? And most of us never get the opportunity to actually tell our stories in a linear manner, let alone be able to even know our own stories. Most of us kind of, you know, randomly tell a story here or there when it's applicable. Uh, Majority of our story just gets shoved away. And so this timeline is a powerful process. Uh, I walk you through it a little bit in Courageous and a little bit in Shrinking the Integrity Gap. But really all it is is simply taking uh, your entire story, whatever you remember, it, it matters. So I have a moment in kindergarten that I remember thinking, I, I don't know why I remember it, and it really probably means nothing. But actually, as I wrote it out in the greater timeline, I had a better understanding of, of a lie and a theme that started early in my story. And the, and the story is this. When I was in kindergarten, uh, I, I've always been a goody two-shoes. I wanted to follow the rules, and I didn't want to make any waves. And so we weren't allowed to go back in the classroom during recess, which is a common, I think, uh, request of teachers. So I was out playing on the recess with my friends, and my girlfriend, uh, Tracy, at the time, uh, she was a good buddy of mine, and she says, I want a color, but I don't have a blue crown, and we need a blue crown, Uh, we're missing it, and so can you run back in the classroom and go get it? Well, in my spirit, I knew that was against the rules, and I didn't want to go, but I didn't say that on the outside, and I just said, sure, because I wanted to please my friend. So I ran into the classroom to get a blue crown, and I got in trouble. I got caught, and my name got on the board. It was probably the only time my name got on the board within school uh, for a negative reason, and I would say that that was a marker in my timeline that I would never think to put down, but when I... Just think about the things that um, I remember as I as I just unpack the narrative, knowing how old I was and developmentally where I was at in kindergarten, and knowing the themes of how I felt and what I did, um, really that theme of being a people pleaser and being disconnected from what I needed and wanted on the inside and how I was actually performing on the outside. That's a great picture right there of a pattern that started for me. And so knowing your story and your timeline gives you this this understanding of where are your vulnerabilities based on the story that you have. It also just helps us to accept, to grieve, to be able to name the losses, and to be able to celebrate the joys and the gifts that we've been given. Not everybody has had your family. Not everybody has had, if you come from a healthy family, that is such a rich gift, and it's part of the the timeline, a part of your story that God has designed that you need to tap into because there is a lot of wealth that God has given you to pass on to others. 
I also want to talk a little bit about um, thinking about what keeps us from going back, especially when we have so much pain, so much pain. So um, there's a there's a scripture that often uh, us Christians will refer to, and so some of the some of you might not make this might not make sense to you, but others you'll so resonate. We often might use the, you know, that phrase of like, why look back? What's the point of looking back? I mean, Paul says, press on to the goal. In Philippians 3, 12, 15, he says, not that I have obtained all this, uh, he's referencing to maturity, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I love that passage. It's such a vision of saying, let's not waste our time regretting the past and living in the past. But that does not mean that you do not do your work and you do not understand your story. Because here's the deal. In context, Paul knows where he comes from. We hear it in all other contexts when he talks about, I was a wretched man. I was full of knowledge. I knew the scriptures inside out. He was a Pharisee, but he was murderer of Christians. And he was one of the greatest persecutors of Christians of his time. And he carried great shame. And so he talks about his story in different ways that tell us he processed it. He knows where he comes from. He's not ignoring it or denying it. But because of that, because he's processed it, he can now press forward. So often our unresolved stories, not knowing the successes or the losses of our past, keep us from moving forward. We either spend our time worrying about the future or regretting the past and not able to live in the present. And a sign of health is to be able to really live here in the moment, in the wave, in the river, and stay uh, in that relaxed posture, in this in this flow of where God's taking you and what he's doing. That's what Paul is modeling to us. He's saying, hey, I completely will go wherever God wants me to go and, and, and not fighting that. And so this scripture is not meant to be used as a cop-out for us to not process or to heal. In fact, that is part of the enemy's tactic is he takes truths and twists them just enough that keeps us in these piles of shame. And I am 100% sold on believing that God wants all of who we are, and that means every crevice of our story. Now, you might be thinking, well, I don't remember a lot of my story. That tells us some things, and and this breakout is not on trauma, but it is a, a sign of, of maybe... Uh, not being emotionally connected in our childhoods. We might have a good childhood, but our families maybe didn't know how to emotionally connect. Emotions are what make memories vibrant. And when they're too emotional, too frightening, uh, too scary, like a war zone or uh, significant abuse, we will do something called dissociate. And I'll talk about that a little bit more. But that leaves gaps in our story And so when you did your timeline and you understand, okay, I don't remember anything from the ages of 5 to 10, what that tells you is that either there just was a lot of moving around and detached and we just didn't connect a lot as a family, or maybe there's some significant trauma that you just wiped out. And in either case, um, it's okay to just accept and acknowledge that I don't know everything that happened there. 
but I do know that I don't, I didn't have as much of a connection, emotional connection as I needed at the time. Often in healthier systems, you remember a lot of the memories, the smells and the tastes and the traditions, um, and, and we relive those and we tell those stories over and over in healthy systems. One of my favorite um, stories that I love of a woman who, who has a significant story, but part of what God is doing in our lives is not just restoring uh, the brokenness of our lives, because he doesn't always do that, as you are understanding from this conference. As Catherine Wolf points out, it's the good hard, uh, that, the, that the healing isn't always what we think it is. And there's this woman in Luke 8. She's the woman that bleeds for 12 years. I can't even imagine having a cycle uh, <laughs> menstruating for 12 years. I would go mad. I, I have really bad PMS and hormones, and I just I can't even imagine. I have great empathy for this woman. But what was even worse is that in the context of her environment back in that Middle Eastern culture, she was an outcast. Because uh, when you bled, you were considered unclean and the women had to go into these red tents and had to have a, a time of pulling away from the community while they were on their cycles because they were considered unclean. So here's a woman who is unclean the entire month for 12 years. And nowhere, she, it says she spent all her money and went to all the medical resources and no one could help her. I know there are women listening right now that you feel that way, that your story, your timeline is full of so much pain and so much hurt and feel you feel like an outcast. You feel like you have spent maybe thousands of dollars on counseling and on medical doctors and nobody is helping you and you are just continuing to metaphorically bleed and nobody can help you. And so this woman... She desperate. She's just desperate. She gets to the point where she doesn't even care what the protocols are from the culture. So again, a rabbi at that time, which would have been Jesus, uh, was not meant to be around an unclean person. And she boldly touches the edge of Jesus's robe. Now that if you if a rabbi touched a, an unclean woman, he would be unclean. But he's Jesus. And instead of flinching and saying, who touched me, you unclean woman? He does say, who touched me? Because he felt the power go out from him and heal this woman. And he turns and he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, we love that story because she gets healed physically. But what I love even more is that he doesn't just stop there. But in the crowd, he notices her. He restores her dignity. He restores her worth and her value in a culture that says she is unworthy and unclean and unable to even be near the Messiah or a rabbi or anybody who would help her. He restores her identity as daughter. She is no longer outcast but she's restored to a place of belonging and delighting in. And he says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It is peace that he leaves her in. And that is the, the restoration process that comes as we know our stories and we begin to accept and we realize 
our identity is apart from our stories and what's been done to us or what we do to others, but it is in God's restoration of our dignity and our worth and our value and our identity, and we can settle into peace, even if the healing doesn't come in the form that we wanted, even if the culture doesn't restore our sense of value and worth in what they see as worthy. Jesus calls us daughter. I'm overwhelmed by that passage, and I just think it's such an incredible message. There's so many other women in the Bible I can go on and on about, but she's one of the ones I would just want you to spend some time maybe after this breakout. Go spend some time listening to her story, reading her story in Luke 8, um, maybe even read it in the message version. Another aspect of unraveling the shame and and taking those layers off and learning to live rooted in grace and just being who God made us to be is beginning to know your design. And so Kathy Town did a shout out for the core values index. And that is something that Jeff and I are, we're a bit biased. We write about it in Courageous and Shrinking the Integrity Gap. And uh, you can listen to it in our podcast. In fact, I think the first four are about the core values index if you want a teaser before you actually take it on our site. Uh, You can also go into the conference notes and take it there or at livingwholehearted.com. But knowing your core values, knowing the way God designed you, really frees us up to, to quit comparing and to be able to actually learn where we are made to fly. For we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Ephesians 2.10 He planned some things for you. He made you a certain way so that you can step into the life right where you are. You don't need to become someone different. You already are her. The pieces is Most of us don't have a story where we've been told or encouraged or uh, reminded of who we are. Instead, we've been told who we shouldn't be or who we shouldn't be. And so I'm going to quickly run through the various, just quickly with you, the various core values. There's so much more in depth. But the first one is a merchant. And the merchant is the the person that is concerned most about the who in the community. They're about relationships and vision, and they really feel their way through the world. They're gifted with communication and words and have an ability and a passion to speak truth and love. There are a lot of things that an unhealthy merchant does, but the best of the merchant draws the community in and sees uh, the core values and the blessings of everyone in the room and wants everyone to be a part of a team. The innovators are the why or the question askers of the community. They're, they're often the wise and compassionate, meaning they hold complexity. They want to know the right way to do things. And they are the ones that connect the dots for the rest of the community to say, here's how we can do something. If this is where we want to go, here's probably the right wisest route. And they are the ones who um, can also be, they can ask a lot of interrogative questions at the worst of who they are. But honestly, they are great question askers. And if, if you want to know how to do something or are stuck in a problem, the innovators are often the ones we're seeking out for those problems. The banker, they're the, they're the ones who ask how. How are we actually going to do this? Because they're concerned about the facts, knowledge, excellence, and justice. 
They want to make sure that there's equity in the community and they notice the details. Things need to be more linear and logical for a banker. And they really want uh, to understand in the data points. And their communication style is very detailed and, again, very linear, which I am not a banker. So sometimes bankers can have a harder time with following me. But I do try to teach to bankers, knowing that I have a daughter who's a banker and I, some of my best friends are bankers. And then just teaching and working with a greater community of bankers, you learn how to package things a little bit more in a linear way. And oftentimes a banker doesn't listen audibly, but they need to go read something. So reading a book helps a banker actually process more. Builders are the final part of the core values. And the builders are the, what are we going to do? They don't want to talk about the actions. They don't want to uh, talk about the plan. They just want to go do it. They want to get it done. They are all about actions and results. And this part of the community, I love them. They're about faith and power. And it's not an abusive power, though in the dark side of a builder, it can be. They, They use an intimidator part of them to push people out of the way. But they're more concerned about the tasks and really getting us moving. So I'm an idea, I'm a merchant innovator, and I connect the dots, a problem solver for people. And my husband is a builder, a merchant, and so he helps us close the loops. He's the one that actually says, okay, let's take that idea and let's actually do it. So if you have a variety of these, you might resonate with different parts. There's so much here. But what I love about the core values is you don't have to know a lot to actually start applying it, though there are layers and layers of beautiful, complex pieces that um, help us in our relationships, in our identity, in our conflict resolution. But the goal that I'm trying to get to in this breakout is for you to recognize that there is a wide variety that God has created. And you might have three of these that are really strong. You might have one that is just super profound and and a little bit of others. You might have none of one of these. And I am in that boat. I am not a builder. And I wouldn't have known that because I was raised to be an actions and results task oriented person. It is the value of my my dad. So I actually can do that. But what I learned in the core values in my own journey was that that's not God's design for me. And it takes more energy for me to stay in that lane and to try to be that person than to just settle into who God actually made me to be. And so the core values really just freed me up to step into the design and to not feel shame about not being an actions and results person, but actually to lean into those people in my community and to appreciate them more and to ask them for help. I love the core values because it does. It teaches us where to ask for help and how to actually lean into our community and to take a deep breath and to go, this is a good thing that I made this way. It's a good thing. And yes, it has some limitations, but that's part of the beauty of the greater body of Christ and just being a part of a greater community. There's a part uh, uh, that I, I believe that we all can get to, and for me particularly, as I shared my kindergarten story, is getting to a place where you really can shed the opinions of others and really be able to step into the delight that God has in making us a masterpiece in the ways he knit us together, whether it's the way we look, in our wirings, our complete stories. And, and that's my heart and my hope for you, and it takes time. And it, it takes a couple other things. So let's talk a little bit about our neurobiology that runs interference sometimes and in being able to take hold 
of the grace that we've been given. I know there's a lot, so you might pause here and take a little break and come back. But we, um, I have a little bit more for us, and then we'll continue to close up. Neurobiology, basically that means just, again, the impact of our brain and how that's um, functioning for us. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We demolish every argument and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. There is an active process of taking our thoughts actively back to God. And our thoughts are are more complex than just what we think. They actually are deeply rooted in our timelines. So when you understand your story and you start to unpack the themes in your story, you'll start to identify the common lies that you go back to again and again, and you start to believe actually are true. And those beliefs have created neural pathways in your brain. They're like ruts in a road. And so if you, you know, it's kind of like autopilot, right? If you take the same drive to drop your kids off every day or the same commute to work every day, your body starts to go in autopilot. And you stop thinking about where you're going. You literally just automatically start turning in the places. You can listen to the radio more. It's probably unsafe. Shouldn't be texting and driving. But you know, we tend to start just going through the motions because you do it over and over and over. That's what happens with our thought life. And and our thought life is based into the experiences you've had throughout your story. And so those ruts are deeply rooted and they're called neural pathways in your brain. And we can actually change those neural pathways. That's what's the coolest part about the neuroscience and the things that we do. So I do treatments like EMDR. Uh, we have stuff called CBT, expressive therapies, but we're constantly working on changing the neurobiology of our brain. But here's the thing, you don't need to have therapy to do that. There are a bunch of ways that we can impact these neural pathways, these ruts in the road, um, that we can either loosen them up and then start to intentionally create a different path. So practically, the example would be, I shared in my session, first session about thinking I was ugly. That neural pathway was rooted in not even an overt experience. Nobody told me I was ugly, but there was this process of my own internal life, like Lucy, where I was comparing myself constantly to other girls around me. And I wasn't having any other experiences that were telling me different, that you were beautiful, you were made uh, just the way you're supposed to be. And I was curvier and um, I have Middle Eastern culture and German and I always felt like I had a big nose and and bigger hips and backside and you know the things that we do as girls where we critique ourselves and it's normal for tweens and teens to do this even more it's starting a little younger and then personality wise I was more reserved and introverted and I I didn't know how to put my deep thoughts that I have in my head all the time into articulate words that didn't come out uh complex and people you know, when you're a teenager, I just always sounded a little too serious. And so I would shove that aside and I would try to be funny. And I, I would say that I can be funny. I've definitely got a lighter heart and a playful heart, a bit sarcastic at times, but I would say that is not my gift. Um, and, and so trying to be that, I think you can relate and get the point. Those experiences uh, were creating the neural pathway of, again, I'm not enough, I'm ugly. And, and whatever we're believing in those thought patterns really impact the actions and the emotions that we have in our life. And so we're learning how to move from just dissociating, going through the ruts and the automatic just living life and not recognizing what 
neural pathways and thought lives we are living from, part of this story is is identifying, or part of the journey is identifying those key lies that are yours. Another one of my key lies is that I'm always alone. Another key lie that I have believed is that um, I have nothing to say that's worth anything. Another key lie that I used to believe was that um, I'm too much, uh, meaning I, I I'm too much emotionally, I'm too much, I'm too intense. Um, so all these things that I used to believe, I've worked really hard, I hate to say work hard, but meaning in an intentional way, bringing that before the Lord and before others and stepping into new experiences. Writing a book definitely hits some of those lies right in the face. Doing this conference hits those lies right in the face because I'm stepping out into who God says I am and how he's made me and who my community has encouraged me to be. I am learning how to live out of the call on my life in grace and not to feel shame about it. And I still feel insecure. I still feel vulnerable. But those are the things that I continually bring back before God again and again and again. God has given us the power to choose. So that automatic, when you think about driving to work or driving to your kids to school, or uh, maybe you don't drive yet, <laughs> but there's a, a pattern that you do in the bathroom where you brush your teeth and you have routines. We have an intentional ability to choose as human beings and to mix that routine up. And so part of this journey is learning what things are helping us to feel more at peace and what things are adding to the anxiety and the shame. So being able to actually step into new experiences requires a real conscious effort. You have to think about this. You have to prayerfully have courage to say, okay, I'm going to trust you, God, with the consequences of this this, uh, obedience here. You're asking me to turn left instead of right. And I need to trust you in this. Even though I don't feel a difference, I don't think differently yet, but when you do something over and over and over and over again, it actually develops new neural pathways and those ruts, those old ruts loosen and the new ruts become good and, and more solid and eventually become your, your new normal. It takes time and consistency, so we have to be patient with the process. But it's part of why Courageous Girls is so intentional to be slow and steady over time so that our girls and us mamas don't uh, have have slow changes over a long period of time. It's why we do long-term therapy and long-term coaching because it takes time and consistency to change those patterns. It's why God says, hey, read your Bible every day of your life. Can you imagine if we actually got in the Word every day and soaked in the, the experience of sitting with God's word again and again and again, that actually changes our neural pathways. You guys, God knew what he was doing. And these things, these kind of what I would call Christianese things we say of have our quiet time, um, they're actually powerful in changing the neurobiology of our bodies. So even though you might not feel super peaceful after having a 10-minute Devo, what you might find is just enough of a shift 
that instead you might eat differently, you might go for a walk to add to that piece. There's an intentional process of listening to all the voices, uh, the music we listen to, the video, the media we watch, even the leaders that we listen to, the bloggers, the, blo- the podcasters, the sermons that you are tuned into. Those are impacting your neural pathways and the voices that you're hearing in your head. We've got to spend time meditating on God's word and being in a community of grace, a community where we don't um, use the word to shame one another and tell each other to should, you should, you should, but rather you are, you are loved, you are known, you are courageous because the God that lives in you and has already gone before you, it is God in us and the work in us that is changing us. It isn't mustard, uh, pull up your bootstraps, do more kind of uh, faith that we're calling you to. Part of our, our hormones and our neurobiology that impacts us are our emotions. And we are emotional beings, whether we like it or not. Um, and there's a continuum there especially female brains. We have a, a little bit more complex hormones that add to um, our, our emotional pieces. And I think it's beautiful. It's taken me many years to appreciate my emotions. But I have a five steps. You can find it on page 77 in Courageous. But it's this process of being able to name my emotions, figuring out where it's coming in my body, what caused it, what experience caused it, what does that emotion actually need to feel at peace, and then to learn to advocate for that need, actually have a new experience that will bring comfort and care to that need. So practically what that looks like is I might feel like I'm battling the lie, I'm alone. And I might feel that aloneness in that anxiety, panic uh, feeling in my chest when I start to think that there's too much to do and there's so much responsibility on my shoulders and I somehow think it's not true, but I somehow think it's all up to me and nobody else is available or feels the same passion or is going to follow through the same way. That's the context of a really negative place that I can go. And I start to feel it heavy in my chest and I can't breathe as well. It doesn't get as bad as a panic attack, but I do resonate with those of you that have panic attacks. And that feeling in my body helps me to recognize that what I need right now is I need some people. I need to be able to ask for help. I need to be able to go back to God's truth and word to recognize he is God and I am not. (laughs) He is God and I am not. And that he is the one who's going to do what he wants to do with the consequences of my life. And it is not up to me. So that that soft shift in lie that can easily be glorified in the church as like, wow, Terry, you're amazing. You're so responsible can become way too heavy for me. And I don't want it. I want nothing to do with it because I want to be a woman who's rooted in grace. And grace says, this is the Lord's and I am his and he's going to have his way. And then I've got to advocate for that need. So that might mean I actually need to call a friend and talk to them and ask them for help. It might mean I have to actually tell my husband, hey, instead of thinking in my head all these bitter uh, thoughts about you, I'm going to actually tell you, hey, I could use some help this week because I'm feeling overwhelmed. I, I often use the analogy of being a big girl versus a little girl. A little kid doesn't know how to advocate for their needs. They expect us parents to care for them. But as we're teaching our children how to use their words, when you talk to a two-year-old, we say, use your words, use your words. We want to be able to be an adult who uses our words and can advocate for myself and say, 
here's how I feel. I'm feeling really alone right now and overwhelmed. Here's what I need. I think I need uh, a little bit of help. So um, could you help the girls get to their dentist appointment, their doctor appointment, and to their soccer games? I need also maybe help with this um, email that I needed to draft. Would you be able to do that, Jeff? And um, help me also with the dishes this week. Would that be? Would you be willing to do that so that I can do X, Y, Z? Wow, that's super mature if I can do that. (laughs) And then what if Jeff says no? Well, then that's the final piece is that he's not the only one that can help me. I have a God of the universe that I can pray and talk to this way as well to be very specific in my prayer life and to be able to unpack uh, those this step with him uh, directly. It's powerful. And often God will show me, hey, Jeff's not the only one. You could also ask some of your other friends. So that takes us to who is on your team. Because having only God on your team, as you hear us saying throughout this conference, is not God's design. He made us for relationships. And part of our neurobiology actually is profoundly impacted by relationships. Our brains actually calm down when we are met with comfort and empathy from other human beings, not from a TV, not from a podcast, from another flesh. This is why isolation is so dangerous. This is why living in a virtual world only is so dangerous. We were not meant to be apart from one another. And though some of us are more introverted and and prefer less amounts of people, we still need just a few on our team. So the question I want you to do is just pause for a second And it might take you a little longer than now, but just to say, God, help me figure out who's already a part of my life that could be on my encouragement team. I usually hold up my hand right now. You would picture my fingers and I have five fingers on my right hand. And I would say, if you can get five women or men on your team who are people who can fan the flame of who you are, who can help speak life into your core values, into your story, who can speak, help you discern between the lies that you believe and the truth of who God says you are, daughter, loved, known, redeemed, forgiven. It's Those are the people that you need to have on your team and you'll go to again and again and again and probably you'll be on their team as well. Now, here's the thing. You don't just do it in your head. You actually need to go talk to these people and ask them to be on your team so they know that when you text them or when you call them, uh, maybe there's one or two on that team that's your 3 a.m. friend, the one that in the most urgent times of your life you could call or text and be able to know and trust that they can hold that messiness with you, not try to fix you, but just pray with you and to speak truth and love. I have a five, a set of team of five, and it's taken me years, but prayerfully, I've been asking God for years. It was a need I knew I had. I'm an independent woman. I'm super uh, kind of powerful in the lane I'm in, and I'm going fast, and honestly, I can often forget, oops, I do need people, and I love people, but I've got a lot of people in my life, and not all those people belong on my team, and not all those people really know the innards of who I am, 
So this encouragement team are the people that get to know the real, the backside of your story and uh, the more vulnerabilities that you have. These are your safe people. And if you don't have that, I am speaking this into you right now. Trust me, God wants that for you too and has people already coming into your life. You're just scared to trust them. So if you get a name or two, it might be time for you to step out, but just to start praying for courage to even just, you know, take them to coffee or do a Zoom meeting with whatever time of, the, of life we're in. The, the other thing is that um, courageous girls are meant to be a, a part of developing that for women. So you could start a courageous girls group. I didn't know hardly any of my mamas uh, seven years ago when we started. And now they're some of my dearest friends and many on my encouragement team. Part of that encouragement team is the place where we go to confess and to seek forgiveness when we are continually uh, being human and messing up. And so the process of confession and forgiveness is a vital part. It's kind of the final pieces of removing the shame and, and layers of shame that hide us. It's learning to name who we are holding unforgiveness and being able to honestly name that with the people in our life who are on our encouragement team, to actually name the behaviors that have harmed us, to name the consequences and the ripple effect of those behaviors, to actually grieve, to feel, to heal it. We have to grieve the losses, uh, whether it's current pain and past pain. This is a profound thought, and I write more about this in other places in the books and in blogs and in other podcasts it's such a hard and in-depth process but forgiveness and and confession must be done in the context of a safe community as well and you can't just do it with God I mean I want to encourage you James talks about this that we confess to God and we are forgiven but when we confess to one another we are healed that's where the restoration happens is in the transform transformational work of confessing out loud with my mouth to another human being being seen and known in that and they're not forgiving me unless they're the one I've offended but they're listening to the process of me saying this out loud to my god and then learning how to let it go which is literally what forgiveness means in the context of the biblical word is let go it's simple it's like a balloon, and you imagine letting go of the helium balloon and it going up into the sky, and I no longer have to hold it, okay? Ah, I think we're winding down. I just gave you so much, but I just want to tell you, I this is a journey. So those four steps, I just want you to think, question, where, where could I start? Maybe you know your story, but you don't know your wiring. So maybe start there. Start with your wiring. Maybe you know your wiring, you've been, you're really into some of the other uh, assessments out there, um, or you, you're really confident of your, your bent and your personality and your drive, but maybe you have a lot of hidden stuff in your story, and so you need to process your story. Maybe you're driving unconsciously throughout life and just going on autopilot, and you're not aware of the lies that you have been entrenched in and believing. And there are a lot of things maybe you don't know about God's word. Maybe you haven't been reading God's word and so meditating and spending some time there. Or maybe you have some of these other things, but it's been too scary to let other people in and it's time to build your encouragement team, to be a part of a community, a deeper, smaller community where you're learning to confess and to forgive 
and to be vulnerable and to ask for help and to get some of those needs met so that we don't move into the maladaptive, meeting all the needs that we have that God designed in funky ways through eating disorders and alcoholism and sex and love relationship addiction and uh, gender confusion stuff. And I, I mean, there is so much that we can struggle with that we don't even connect to this part, but this is the prevention and the healing journey. And I am so grateful that you are taking this in and I want you to know whatever you noticed, it's what you're supposed to notice for now. <laughs> I don't imagine you taking all of this, uh, but I wanted to get a lot, uh, just a little bit more practical um, in these breakouts. And so let me leave you with a prayer and a sense of a reminder of what Aslan tells Lucy. You doubt your value. Don't run from who you are. Lord, may we step in to who you say you are, a God of love and of mercy and of justice, a God who redeems everything in our story for the purposes to bring you glory and to make good for your people. Lord, we don't understand why you made us the way you made us. Even with the flaws and the way our neurobiology and our hormones and our humanity, it can be super frustrating, especially when uh, we have wirings that have bent towards anxiety or we have more flippant tempers or uh, we feel like we're, we're more tongue-tied than we want to be. Whatever it is that we're frustrated with, I pray that we can give that to you and, uh, and allow you to show us how your power is made perfect in our weakness, that it is through the design, your purposed design, your beautiful design in us, in our stories, in our wirings, in our neurobiology and humanity, and in the community you have placed us in, even when we fight it and we think, I want a different community. Oh, man, Lord, I love you, and I love these women, even though I don't know them personally. I can see uh, their face and and just praying that your face of of love and of delight uh, would just shine on them, that there would be a deepening of peace, a steadying of their roots, and diving deeper into the voice of grace, the one that says, I love you right where you are. Now, women, if you uh, are hungry for more, continue to read The Courageous Book. Go back and read it again. Listen to our podcast, The Living Wholehearted Podcast with Jeff and Tara. Follow me at Tara Matson. If you can also hit my blog um, and my website at taramatson.com. Start a Courageous Girls group. It's free. I wrote over 100 curriculum from second grade all the way through high school to help moms and daughters to walk in small groups over long periods of time. Lots of next steps. Continue listening to these breakouts and trust the journey you're on. You don't need to be further than you are, but right now, just take the next step. Just the next one. You doubt your value, but don't run from who you are.